During the Easter season, we have returned time and time again to this fact that the whole universe belongs to God and that in Jesus, God is healing the universe, every square inch of it, from nature to culture, humans, all of it is being healed by God through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. We've been coming back to this over and over, over the last several weeks since Easter, because we're in this Easter season, and we've been working our way through this whole concept. Now, Jesus, he's praying in John 17. And this passage is going to wrap up everything that we've been um, looking at in Scripture over the past five weeks. And we're going to see that here is Jesus right before He leaves the world right before he ascends into heaven to be with the Father. And his deep burden is for us, for the church. In the last several weeks, I've drawn your attention to this astonishing verse in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, where Jesus says, Behold, I'm making all things new. When Jesus says that in Revelation, he's in heaven. He's with the Father. He has already ascended. So when Jesus is here at the passage we looked at today, he has not yet ascended, but he's preparing for that. And as he prepares for that, he knows that his continuing task is to make all things new. He started this task while he was here on this earth. He kicked off. He inaugurated the kingdom. And so when we look at Jesus praying this prayer, this Great prayer, one of the longest prayers recorded in Scripture. He knows that his time is coming to leave. What is his great concern? His great concern is what it's always been for. It's the renewal of all things. And his burden is for us because of this. When Jesus ascends into heaven, God sent his spirit to make us, the church, into the body of Christ. So as Jesus is praying in John 17, his burden is that he knows that we will take up this task, that God will pour out his spirit on us, that it will be the church who becomes the body of Christ on this earth while Christ is in heaven. And our job is to continue partnering with God, being drawn into this great renewal project that God is in. Now, here's what's really important. As Jesus has all of that going on, as he's preparing to leave, as he, as he knows that his task to make all things new is going to be handed off to us in sorts, what does he choose to pray for for us? He chooses to pray for our unity. As he reflects on our task to be the body of Christ, to, to be drawn up into the mystery of God, to carry on the work of God in the making of all things new, the great linchpin in that task is our unity. Because it's a horrible thing to see a disfigured body, right? It's a terribly inefficient body that has lost its connection to one another, right? So here is Jesus. He's praying for our unity. Because now that Jesus has ascended to the Father, the locus the center of the work of God on this earth is the church. For all of its beauty, 
and for all of its tragedy. There are times I'm fairly certain I'm smarter than God, and I could have picked something better than the church. But it's what he picked. It's what he chose. And that's why it consumes the prayers of Christ. So what we're going to do here this morning for our last For the last message in this series about God's astonishing work of making all things new is I want to show you in the prayer of Christ how the great center of God's work is what God does in us as a church and that through us, God is working for the renewal of the universe. So look with me. Let's start in verse 22. Jesus prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. This is John chapter 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now, what I want you to notice here is I want you to notice the nature of Christian unity. The nature of Christian community. In fact, I could have picked several other verses in the prayer. Four times in this prayer, Jesus describes Christian community in the most impossible of terms. Jesus describes Christian community in the terms of the unity that the Father and the Son and the Spirit has. This is not called setting the bar low. Pray, I pray, God, that they may be one as we are one, perfectly one. I in them and you in me. This is why I had, we read from the Song of Solomon. There's this image in the Song of Solomon of this incredibly selfless love. This is the Father and the Son and the Spirit constantly orbiting around one another, each centering on the other, not none of them demanding that the others revolve around himself, but each is voluntarily orbiting the other person, circling the other person, pouring out their love, pouring out their delight and adoration. This is what Rublev captures in his icon. All three are leaning into the other, none to himself, but all giving themselves to the other. This interdependence, this interpenetration, this oneness that is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is what Jesus prays that we would have sitting in this room with one another. And that's astonishing. And you know what's astonishing about this is that this is very different from what we're accustomed to. See, being raised in America, you've been taught, whether explicitly or implicitly, you've been taught that relationships, that friendship, that community is based on similarity. That real community is, is based, look, look at it this way. You've been raised, you've been socialized to walk into a room, to immediately size up the room, and to figure out who you can connect with. Birds of a feather flock together. Relationships are built on shared interest, chemistry, affinity, having stuff in common. But that's nowhere in this prayer. 
In this prayer, there is an entirely different view of unity and community and oneness. Look closely at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's Mike. Right? That's Melanie. We have believed because of this passing on of the word down through time. So Jesus is praying for us here. And look what he prays for us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. Now jump down to verse 23. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. Now look. In both of these verses, our community, our unity, our oneness, its basis is that we are in Christ and he is in us. He bases our oneness not on what we share with regard to hobbies or interest or educational background, but he says, God, I'm in them. You are in me. We, they are in us. This is the basis of our one. This is the source and the secret of Christian community. It's truth and the common experience of Jesus. That's why Clotilda and I, who were born thousands of miles apart, Clotilda was raised in the Gambia. She is from an utterly different culture than Louisiana and Texas. But you know, I am in Christ and Christ is in me and Christ is in Clotilda. This is the basis of our oneness. When Clotilda goes back to the Gambia, she will live a very different cultural way of life than Esther is living. Thank goodness we don't have to rely on shared interest, affinity, chemistry, common backgrounds. This is the source and the secret of Christian community. Christian community is not about compatibility. That's what the Elks Lodge is about. Right? That, that's what various and sundry networks of, of, of people in our community are about. But that is not the basis of Christian community. The oneness that Jesus is praying for, this depth of oneness can only be grounded in the God who calls us together. And you know what? Stephen and Leah, he could have called them to a different church. But he's calling them here. And that's the basis of our unity. The mystery of Christian community is that whatever our differences, we can live together as brothers and sisters of Christ, children of the Heavenly Father. One of the great blessings that God has given our church is that most Sundays, this room looks a bit like the UN. And we get this privilege every week of being with Christians from a wide range of ethnic and ethnic groups and cultures. And, and all of you, I hope, have experienced the jolt of joy when you meet with someone that has a common experience with Christ. And in that moment, you know, here is a brother, here is a sister. Despite all of the differences, there's this deep oneness so, as our church is caught up with God in His work to make all things new, we must receive this part of God's work. We must allow God 
to work at bringing us together, knowing one another, loving one another. So, when the Spirit of God is calling you into a church, I hope you know that it's because God is answering the prayer of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And when you sense in your flesh everything rising up to pull away, to cocoon, know that Jesus prayed for you. That in that moment, Jesus knew what you would be going through. And he begged the Father to rescue you from the damnation of your cocoon. And to draw you into a oneness that his spirit can give to you. Now, as we reach out and love one another and embrace this deep unity, there are some pretty incredible things that are going to happen. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that this is a result. What is the result of our oneness? as we allow God's Spirit to draw us together, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You know, there are... There's a lot about Christianity that's easy to swallow. Love your neighbors yourself. We share this in common with a number of great religions in the world. Right? The golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto us. The biblical teaching on, on this environment is easy to believe in the culture we live in. And we share that view with a lot of people who aren't even Christians. That this world matters. And that we should care for it. But there are parts to Christianity that are not so easy to believe. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, that's not easy. The idea that Jesus alone is the true God, that there is only one God, only one. And all of the other gods are false gods, non-gods. This is not easy to claim today. There are parts of Christianity that are easy to espouse. But this idea that only Jesus reveals the only God, that every other God is a deception, that every other God is false, that there is only one, And you can only see him by looking at Jesus. This idea that Jesus, a man from the Middle East, walking the dusty paths of Palestine 2,000 years ago, who died, was actually God in the flesh? Now, that's drinking the red Kool-Aid kind of stuff. That's, that's, That's not easy to believe. And on top of that... Jesus not only claims that he alone is the image of the true God. He not only claims that he alone is God. He looks you in the eye and demands absolute loyalty. And he says anything less than that 
will lead to your ultimate destruction. Now that's rude. Unless it's true. I mean, it really is. And that's hard to believe. Those kind of demands to have absolute control over your life, that's either as wicked as slavery or it's true. And to many people, it sounds as atrocious as slavery. Sounds to your ears and mine. And yet Jesus tells us here, he can create a love in our church that is of such a nature, it can knock flat all of the resistances to that claim. That's astonishing. He can do something with regard to how Rick and I treat one another and relate to one another. He can do something so extraordinary that your spouse or your friend or your coworker who is appalled at the arrogance of the claim that only Jesus is God and that apart from him, there is only damnation. Jesus is saying here, the oneness I give you is so powerful, it cannot flat resistance to that claim. All of us know people who balk at these parts of Christianity, at these audacious, arrogant claims. Jesus is telling us that he can give us a kind of love. No, no, I said that wrong. Jesus is praying for us to have a kind of love for one another. That it astonishes skeptics into believing. Not proves them into believing, not argues them into believing, not beats them into believing, but astounds them into believing. There's a sense here in Jesus' prayer that our contribution to the spread of the kingdom can only be as great as our unity. Do you see what's at stake as God is calling you into a group and you're trying to decide if you're going in or not? Our ability to spread God's kingdom is directly related to the depth of our oneness and to the visibility of our oneness. The secret power of evangelism, of mission, it's not individuals or organization or no organization or programs or no programs. The secret power is our love for one another. Not some mamby-pamby feel-good kind of love, but this deep oneness, this perfect oneness. It's the, the secret power, it's a diverse community of individuals who are orbiting in love around one another. You see, love is, a te- is, is such a messed up word in our culture. Everybody likes this word love, but you've got to define the word love on the Trinity because everything else is just sugar. It, it, it's just some easy thing. But the biblical, what Jesus is praying about, this love of the Trinity, when that is the secret as we orbit around one another, as none of us insist on ourselves, but we pour out ourselves in love and adoration and service to the other. None of us 
demanding the group center on our needs or our glory. Each of us voluntarily pouring out love, pouring out our lives for each other. You see, one of the ways that Jesus is making all things new is that when you come into a relationship with him, he demands that you give up the love affair with yourself. He calls you out on it and he absolutely draws a line in the sand and says, repent, give up your mistress, give up yourself. This is one of the ways he makes all things new. It's the end of your love affair with autonomy and individualism. <laughs> and this is, this is the heartbeat of our culture from Captain Ahab and Moby Dick to the Lone Ranger to Alexander Supertramp walking off into the wild. Whether it was 200 years ago or 19 years ago, nothing's changed. Our culture bows at the altar of hyper-individualism and it is still the same dead end road that led to Alexander McCandless's death. You've been taught to find yourself by yourself. To squirrel away and discover who you were made to be. We fight to protect our privacy. We fight anything that limits our freedom. If you try to get into my business, I'm out of here. Oh, we're fine with loose connections. But we resist it when someone or something begins expecting loyalty and commitment for the long haul. To spread the gospel, we, the church of the incarnation, we must continue to let God's spirit draw us toward one another. And to do that, we've got to invest in each other. We've got to look at our schedules and make time for community. Because all this stuff I'm talking about in lofty ideas is really about little decisions that you show up in your calendar and in your checkbook. We've, we've got to look at ways that we can go more deeply into community life. So, I've talked about the nature of our unity. It's this Trinitarian oneness. I've talked about the power of our unity that it can knock flat resistance to the audacious claims of Christ. Finally, I want to show you that in Jesus' prayer, and this is really important, this unity, this oneness of the church, it is not a goal that we aim for. It is a gift that God gives us because Jesus prayed for it. Jesus didn't pray that we work hard for it. He begged the Father to give to us. And He has. So our job is not to attain it, but it is to guard it, right? If, if I give Jacob a gift, he doesn't then have to go and work for the gift. His job is to protect the gift, right? Do you see what I'm saying? So our job is to fight against all the threats to that which the Spirit will give us, has given us, because God answers this. The Father has answered the Son's prayer. I mean, this is that, that phrase in the Song of Solomon. Look, if you want to learn more about the love of Christ for you and of the church for each other and the church for Christ, read the Song of Solomon. You remember that line that, that Paula was reading, catch the little foxes? We've got to catch the little foxes that are going to destroy this vineyard. 
Our job is, is to fight against these threats. So what I want to do for the last portion of this message is I'm going to kind of shift gears. And I, so Jesus prays for this, that God would give it to us. God, I'm convinced, has given it to us as a gift. So as we're meditating on that, what are the foxes? Well, the best way I know to identify the foxes, the threats to this unity, is the life of Peter. Peter and the Gospels. I want to pull back, and those of you who are familiar with the biblical story, with the gospel story, this will, you'll recognize a lot of this. Peter's journey into Christ was marked by a series of crises. At key moments in Peter's journey toward Christ, Peter was destroyed, and he had to decide if he would go farther. And there are four great crises that Peter went through. And they are the four great crises that we as a church are going to face. Because Peter's journey into Christ is the same as our journey into Christ. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to very quickly summarize these four great crises that Peter faced. And then I'm going to come back and talk about how they are going to be the threats that we as a church will face as we embrace the Spirit's gift of unity. Number one, the first crisis Peter faced was when Jesus called him to be a disciple. To actually literally follow Jesus around Palestine, Peter had to leave his family and his vocation. And that's the first crisis he met. Those of you familiar with the story, you know, Peter in that moment, he has to decide, do I leave everything and go to Christ or not? The second crisis, the second crisis is when he discovered that Jesus was not who he thought he was. And he discovered that Jesus was not who he wanted him to be. Peter preferred a prophetic, a messianic Jesus, who did not insist on washing the disciples' feet, right? Because when Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet, Peter says, no, that is not who I want you to be in my life. And this was a crisis for Peter. The other time that Peter met the... the, crisis of Jesus becoming somebody he didn't want him to be was when Jesus insisted on talking about suffering and dying. And Jesus, and Peter rebuked Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. This was a crisis for Peter. It was a crisis of Jesus being other than who Peter wanted him to be. The third crisis is when Jesus became weak and died, right? Peter's in the courtyard and the little girl says, no, aren't you with him? And what does Peter say? No, no, I'm not. This was a crisis for Peter. Peter did not need, he could not handle a Jesus that died. The fourth crisis for Peter, the worst, the worst of all, was when he had denied Jesus. And then Jesus came back and looked him in the eye and he invited him back in. When Peter lost all of his illusions, not about Jesus, but about himself. Now, these four crises that Peter went through in following Jesus, these are the foxes that we must guard against in the vineyard of this church. Number one, when you are initially drawn into this church, there is always a part of you that will cling to something you have to leave behind to be a part of this church. I've talked about the value of autonomy, 
If God calls you into a church, Church of the Incarnation or another church, he's calling you to leave that behind and to make yourself vulnerable, to allow people to hold you accountable, to allow people to know your business, to join incarnation or whatever body of Christ you're a part of, you're joining a body that you can't control. And if you need stability and you need power and you need strength and you need efficiency, you're going to have to leave that behind if you're going to be a part of this church. In two more Sundays, we're going to kick off membership. And for some of you, it's no big deal. But for others of you, you're Peter and you're having to leave something behind that you really value. It's a crisis. The second crisis will occur the moment you discover that we are not as good of a church as you had thought. If God leads you to the church of the incarnation, I promise you, from the bottom of my heart, I am going to sin against you. I will. And if you expect anything less, when you suddenly discover that this church can ravage you just like your family has ravaged you, it's going to be a crisis. The sermons are going to get boring. The worship services will lose their luster. Friendships are going to feel shallow. The experience of community that first drew you here, that you long for, that you enjoy at some point, it's going to be missing, and a great disillusionment will overwhelm you. But remember this. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself destroy the community. It's like people who hold on to a dream of a spouse and with all of their power, they try to make their spouse into that. They destroy their marriage. There will come a crisis when you discover that incarnation does not measure up. The third crisis is when you feel misunderstood and even rejected by this church. Maybe you won't be asked to fill a position that you thought you should have filled. Or maybe you're going to do a lot of stuff and not be thanked for it. The fact is, I promise you, you will suffer as much from this church as you will for this church. Peter suffered as much from Jesus as he did for Jesus. And the same will happen with this church. The fourth crisis, I think, will be the hardest of all. It's going to happen when you fail, when you mess up, and you're covered in shame, and you're disappointed in yourself, and you're humiliated over your anger or your jealousy or your affair or whatever it is that gets hung out for all to see. And it's going to be easier for you to go somewhere else than to stay here where everybody knows. But to embrace and enjoy this gift of oneness that the Father offers, this depth of community that will satisfy your soul, to embrace it, you must go through every one of those crises. You must pass through each one. Because here's the incredible thing. 
each crisis was really a gift to Peter. And it will be a gift to you. Each of these moments of suffering is a gift. Because in these terrible sufferings, and I'm not trying to make light of them. I'm not trying to say, oh, it's really good when the church hurts you. No, I'm trying to say that in the brutality of that, in the, in the terrible nature of that, you will get the opportunity to know Christ more deeply, to come more deeply into Christ. You will get the opportunity and the blessing of a greater inner freedom than you've ever experienced. All of these four crises, surrendering your autonomy, giving up your idealized view of the church, denying your pride, letting the truth about your own wickedness and your own brokenness be absorbed and swallowed by a group of people who know it. All four of these crises are really about losing an illusion and welcoming reality and growing into Christ. Now, being an American is to be raised in the cult of self-reliance. We've been socialized to worship individual achievement. We're, we nurse as infants the milk of self-sufficiency. But the good news is, Hebrews 7.25 tells us Jesus has not stopped praying. Listen to these words. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As difficult as our journey ahead is, right now, Jesus is still praying. He's living to make intercession for us. God can save us from all of our deep desires for radical privacy. God can save us from our fierce individualism. And he can bring us into being the kind of people that embrace this oneness. Why? Because Christ continues to faithfully pray for us. And if you think your mama's prayers are answered, you see what I'm saying? What a gift. So let's do our part. Let's go into this journey with eyes wide open. There will be foxes. Let's just guard against them. And let's accept the gift that God is going to give. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?